We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Freddie is a hip-hop OG, an art world OG, a downtown New York scene OG, and a cannabis connoisseur. The most recent credit in his decades-long resume is director of the Netflix documentary The Grass is Greener, a look at marijuana in America spanning from hip-hop's rebellious love of the sticky green to the tragedy of the war on drugs imprisoning millions who are black while green entrepreneurs who are white are rising up all over the country, getting in on a hot new industry. It's a great doc, highly recommended, but I expect nothing less than flavor from a man, Fab, who was the original host of Yo! MTV Raps, the director of the video for Nas's song One Love, and one of the architects of the street art movement. I've known Fab for decades, and I always love chopping it up with him. He's a brilliant renaissance man who's respected by hardcore rappers, highfalutin art folks, and the people who greenlight films at Netflix. It's my mellow, my man, Fab Five Freddy on Touré Show. How long have you been smoking weed? Cannabis has been in my life since I was very young. I mean, as you see in the film Grass is Green, I allude to my to my dad, whose crew, uh, very hip, very cool, intellectual black men, were involved in the plant. It was their intoxicant, if you will, of choice. So it was around my entire life. So you were a kid introduced to it? It was As a kid, it was around me. You, s- you smoke every day now? I've been a regular cannabis smoker for many years. Yeah. yeah. But I I like to compare the way I indulge in the plant to the way people drink wine. So I'm not like a multiple blunt smoking guy. Um, I'm like a guy that likes to sip and taste. Okay. Yeah. Indica or sativa? It, it, it depends on what I need at the moment. Okay. And so those clarifications, those classifications, if you will, or titles, are something most New Yorkers don't have the ability to access. You are at the mercy of whatever your dealer, your supplier has. Right. When you go to places that have a civil, normalized, you know, way to use the plant, you then can get variations on the indicas, sativas, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, you know, it bothers me when people say, like, oh, I don't smoke weed, it makes me go to sleep. Well... That's because you got a strain that makes you go to right. sleep. And that's, and that's also reflective of in New York City, we have what would you could call a draconian. Even though we have yep. medical cannabis, it's draconian in, yep. in the way it's set up. It's because our governor really didn't want to get down. But now, which I'll, I can get into a little later, the, the New York State legislatures, primarily the legislatures, legislators of color, are now in unison on what should be the appropriate kind of uh, restorative justice piece in terms of cannabis uh, legalization here in the city. So addressing all the issues that my film focuses on, they've been waging this battle for a long time. In fact, Cassandra Frederick, the New York State Director of Drug Policy Alliance, is the primary lobbyist, Mm -hmm. which I learned uh, recently Mm -hmm. when I got my local representative in Harlem, Al Taylor, who brought the majority speaker, majority leader speaker, I'm still getting it all down, Crystal People Stokes, to my home to watch the film, of which she then was in tears along with Al Taylor's wife. And then they let me, and they recognized Cassandra Frederic, who's trying to get it so that New Yorkers can access the plant in all its variety, and all its medical benefits, and all its, yeah. um, you know, um, 
altered states of awareness. I mean, uh, the first time I went into a shop in Washington State, I was like, wow. Like, this is, I couldn't even believe it. Yeah, it's amazing. But it's a whole other world. It is. I I mean, you know, and and it's presented in a mature, professional way. It doesn't seem like some kiddie thing you buy in the park and you smoke on a sly. Like, it's it's like wine. It is. It is like If it's presented like that. It is presented like wine or like other craft products that we have access to now, beers and other products that are produced with a special kind of love as opposed to the big business mass production kind of model. All those things exist. And keep in mind, cannabis has never killed anybody. Right. So I like to re- remind people of that as they now, especially coming out of seeing the film and, and kind of shaking off this heavy load of uh, bullshit that has been um, stacked upon people. And then the us people of color who have been disproportionately criminalized, okay? So it's it has spooked the hell out of people over the last 100 years. I mean, you know, your film covers the breadth of the marijuana conversation, right? Yeah, you go from hip-hop and jazz being rebellious and artistic and creative mm-hmm. into the Brian Stevenson, the, you know, the, the incarceration, you know, yeah. Asha Bendeli losing her son yeah. into that madness. And you know, I find a lot of times people... Like you bring up weed and people start giggling like like they have actually toked and just because you mentioned it. Yeah. But it's an extraordinarily serious issue when you have millions of people being sent away. Yeah. Especially when you have other people who are creating businesses on yeah. it, the same thing that you sent him away for. So how's that? That's crazy. That's what, you know, I, I learned a lot more than I actually knew. That's the fun part about documentaries. You know, you do the deep dive and you, you get like all this information. And it all just fit the narrative that we were looking for, but it it took us in directions that we really weren't expecting. Like, I, what'd you learn that you didn't know? I learned that cannabis prohibition has been used as the, one of the main engines to fill America's prisons with people of color. The for-profit prison industry mm-hmm. is full of people of color and then you can go on your stock market now and invest in that business Mm -hmm. so that's been going on for a long time obama tried to roll some of it back but it's still in existence and from state to state there are variations on how these laws are applied or how people are criminalized and the case that i look at in the film a man from louisiana that was given 14 years for two joints of cannabis five dollars worth Essentially. That's insane. Um, he had prior arrests and convictions, all nonviolent cannabis pres- possession. But the multiple bill um, statutes that are in effect in Louisiana have thousands, hundreds of thousands of black folks in jail. Like when he walked out of prison, he said, man, there's other people in jail doing life for small amounts of cannabis. So that's going on in Louisiana. New Orleans, one of my favorite places on the planet. Indeed. Unfortunately, there's this uh, real savagery going on to, in terms of people of color. This is what the reality is. It was shocking to see the specifics. Even to learn that in New York State, where we are right now, New York City, cannabis has been decriminalized here since the, the 70s. So it's, it's, they now have really backed off on a lot of this. But for many, many years, um, the cop on the street had, if you're smoking a joint, if he saw you, whatever, he, he had the option either to give you a pre- essentially like a ticket, a citation, or to put you through the system. You talk about the idea of reparations for the war on drugs. Yeah. What does that look like? It's, you know, words as we know, have expanded meanings based on usage. So reparations, as we are mostly familiar with, is giving black folks something for the hundreds of years of free labor that was forced from us. Um, they, in Europe, after World War II, it was called the Marshall Plan, which worked. They rebuilt Germany. They rebuilt Japan, Tokyo, uh, Nagasaki, Hiroshima specifically. Um, so what happened was in the, in that moment when, when Cassandra Frederick emphatically says, that's right, I said reparations, that really was in response to something that had happened a few weeks before 
uh, there was a cannabis demonstration at Union Square Park down on 14th Street, and Cynthia Nixon was running for the Democratic nomination, and mm-hmm. she had the correct line governor, yeah. on yeah, running for governor um, about cannabis and how it has disproportionately affected people of color mm-hmm. here in New York State and many other places. So she was pushing for legalization and laying that out there in a real kind of emphatic way. At this dem- particular demonstration, she used the word reparations, and it was a bit of a backlash from some black politicians and public people in the public eye that were like, no, you can't say reparations. Because, you know, for black folks, we want reparations for what happened to us during 400 years of slavery. So Cassandra Frederick was like, yes, we want reparations. And she was like, that line came from uh, her talking points, if you will, Cassandra mm-hmm. was telling me, because she's been on this and leading this fight extremely articulate and emphatic for a long time. So she was going, yes, that's right, I said reparations. <laughs> it's a great moment. It was a great moment. So it was a great moment. And then what kind of emphasized it, we cut to Killer Mike. We'd ask him the same question. And he was like, I'd love to get those reparations for an 80-year-old drug war. Yeah. And it would be great if Mexicans and blacks got half of the licenses to go to business, which that would be that would make it, a lot of sense. It, it would be incredible. And then he goes happen. on, which I love to say, we can build the kind of generational wealth that a company like Jack Daniels has created, which was also an allusion to the fact that they recently announced that mm-hmm. there was a black man who mm-hmm. came up with the formula for for this great American product, Jack Daniels whiskey. Mm-hmm. And so it was like really made me think even deeper with people that have been involved in these issues for a long time have really looked at it in that way and which is i mean let's face it once again cannabis has not killed anyone anybody no one has died no and you talk about that snoop talks about that that you put four people (laughs) in a room who don't like each other with a bottle of whiskey Somebody will get killed. Somebody will right? Get you killed, put yeah. eight people who don't like each other with some weed, well, they're going to chill out. They might find ch- some common ground. Like he said, they'll be, they'll be taking selfies and stuff. Right. Snoop's so funny. <laughs> but that's kind of the truth. You know, there's that, there's that peace pipe, brotherly love kind of thing that the plant does kind of make happen, if you will. Um, passing a joint. I remember I used to, it used to happen a lot more when I was mad when I was a lot younger. I think it was because cannabis wasn't so expensive then. But people would pass joints to you at concerts, people you didn't even know. Right. And it was like a like a common, cool etiquette kind of thing right. that used to go down. Um, but uh, like I said, it's kind of expensive these days. But Why do you like it? Why do you smoke? That's a good one. Um, it... <laughs> A part of it, it re- like once again, so now that we can get this, the very specific strain, I'm not so much an indica guy, which will kind of lay you out. Right. I'm a more of a sativa yep. hybrid guy, yep. and I'm an, I'm an afternoon, evening kind of smoker. So it enhances my engagement. It kind of mellows me out. It does a lot of great things that I enjoy. I mean, yeah. I really can't, it's a good question to fully articulate but I feel good, yeah, and I, and I like the way I feel. I like zoning out, you know. I, I I sort of go into a sort of bubble, and I'm aware, but yeah. I'm not exactly. And- yeah, the some of that happens, and as a creative person, that's often thinking about an idea for a painting or ideas for films and stuff. That proper strain does aid that that kind of focus, if you will, which I didn't really know all these things. You feel these things, but then when you begin to re- read some of the, 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 the things that are done with people doing comprehensive testing and stuff, and they, you, you could even, any strain that you get, you can Google it, and mm-hmm. there's Wikipedia-type sites that oh, yeah. will give you the feelings you'll get and the medical benefits you'll get, and then I go, especially has, as I was working on the film, getting the actual specific strains that the guys are growing and then looking at these things and looking online and going, oh my God, that's exactly what I have. And right. I do feel like it says I should feel. You right. know? And wow. so wow. that's really special considering I've enjoyed this plant for many years, but once again, I'm at the mercy of what my 
connect has at that time. And I'd be like, dude, it's not the same as last time, dog. It's, it don't hit me. Oh, I'm sorry, Fab. You know, I wasn't able to get that, but but I got you next time. I'd be like, oh, boy. Right. And you'd never, you would never <laughs> say no, right? Like, if you went to the store to get your beer or your wine, yeah. they didn't have what you want, and you was, would go somewhere else. Yeah. When the weed man comes, yeah. you'd be like, all right, I'll take the OG ah, Kush. I gotta take the my stuff. I gotta take what you... And then in the hood, I remember several years ago, like the hottest strains that I knew that a lot of these guys didn't know, they were like everything was either purple haze mm-hmm. or or like sour diesel. Right. And I'm like, everybody's saying that. Everybody can't know <laughs> the specifics of these right. strains, but they knew that was a great marketing right. tool. So right. sour diesel, purple haze, and then Kush came in. Those were the names that you heard in the hood. But I think even guys in the hood, like uptown where I'm from in Harlem, guys are getting some of these branded products are coming in from Cali. The different, you know, vaping apparatuses, the little kind you of- You vape? Vape. Yeah, definitely I vape occasionally. I, I, I dipped into it and, yeah. and it felt different. And I'd be like, am I high? I can't tell what's See, going no, on. You didn't get the right ones. When you get the right ones and you take a hit, you will cough like you've just hit a good joint. But like when I went in the store, they were like, well, with vaping, you are not getting the entire flower, which no. is why it feels different to you. Well, it depends on where you, what you're getting. I've had a variety of vapes. Some I barely felt. Right. And I had the same, like, am I high? Am I feeling anything? Yeah. And then I had some that were like, whoa. Okay. So it's a process. And there's various processes of distilling the oils from the plant. Yeah. And you could totally nerd out if one would want on on how technical or scientific, if you will, the, the various processes are and the, the kind of nerdy guys that they run to YouTube and do their little to tutorial videos on their cleaner, more effective ways of making oils and uh, shatter and these the various kind of ha- they're, they're all essentially hash to me, but in these different kind of you could dab and so you'll try you'll try a variety of methods and stuff. Because I like to roll. Me too. I'm a cl- classic guy. I like okay. to roll a decent-sized joint. I'm not really a blunt guy. Right. Or whatever. It's too heavy. It's too much cigar. It right? is a Just lot. A it's, it's a stylistic thing, the yeah. blunt thing. I got the whole history on that, which I kind of figured that out. But really, um, when I'm around other guys and I'm out, when I'm at, and if, especially when making the film and you're visiting different growers and different guys and they're bringing out these different apparatuses of of dabbing and the complexity of these kind of dab situations are like really amazing what's going on. So that's kind of fun, but it's not really my thing. But occasionally if I'm out in public and you, you want to indulge, like growing up in New York, going to the movie theaters, that was ubiquitous, that cloud of smoke. Well, of course it was cigarettes as well, right? but puffing some weed at, in the movies was like a part of the process of going really? to the film for me. Yeah, growing up in New York, um, the, you know, 40 Deuce, Times Square, the way it used to be, that was a part of the process. Like my homies, when I'd go to the movies, we would definitely have to have to be smoking on a little something to enhance that whole vid- audio visual experience. You know, what I used to do is because um, I didn't really like shopping. You know, going to the supermarket or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I so drive. You know, I blow up in the car. Mm-hmm. And then go in the supermarket. It's so much fun. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's so much fun. You, yeah. You buy mad more stuff than you mean to, but yeah. it's so much fun. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. But it, it like it has a way of making everyday events like you know just more special, unique, and different. Mm-hmm. And like you know, you know the thing that I also have thought about in the process of making this film and learning more. And thinking of like Louis Armstrong and these people that were avid cannabis users and advocates and speaking out. I mean, not so much publicly, but to his people. And Louis Armstrong documented his hundreds of hours of recordings that he made where he would speak about how he felt about a, a, a broad range of issues. But in thinking that black folks way back then, we didn't have access to medical, good medical care. We had to find that, well, typically the families knew a bunch of remedies, if you think about it, and um, there probably was somebody in town that really had the had the master list of all the potions and barks and herbs that would, right. that would heal and cure you. 
So when you hear about particularly people coming back, people that are dealing with PTSD, especially like people that's committing suicide on a regular basis, sadly, and the and the treatment for PTSD is opioids, is the medic medicine that's given to you. But it's been reported that people get better results from using cannabis. They've reported, oh my God, this is way better. Plus, of course, you don't have to worry about getting addicted. So when I go back and I think about a black man in the South or Louis Armstrong, even in New Orleans, where you still had to mind how you moved around white folks, right. just based on the nature of racism in America right. and that apprehension that could come on upon you if you step wrong or you bumped into a white or just this the trauma of walking down the street getting disrespected over nothing over nothing so imagine knowing that if you've inhaled that plant it, it softens that blow you don't have that apprehension as much you know it kind of all those things that we enjoy about the plant and that give us these other benefits and release it made me think about how people use the plant and the benefits that they obviously got at that time. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. We'll get back to Fab Five Freddy in one second, but I want to give a shout out to the underwear that I'm wearing right now. The company that's been supporting Toray Show for a long time, Saks Underwear. They've got fantastic underwear with great styles and great protection for a man. They've got this ballpark pouch in their underwear that just takes care of you and keeps you in place and 
Look, you want to put on underwear, say, oh, it looks good, and then not think about it the rest of the day. That's what Saks gives you. I put it on. I feel good. I don't think about it. It doesn't ride up. It takes care of me. And I can go on doing whatever I got to do throughout the day. I want you to try Saks underwear, so I got a deal with them. $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase when you use the promo code TORE at checkout. T-O-U-R-E at checkout for $5 off some awesome Saks underwear. Go to SaxUnderwear.com, that's S-A-X-X Underwear.com, and use the promo code TORE and get $5 off of the best underwear you could possibly find. We're creative people. I think we would agree that the plant helps our creativity, but did you find anything that quantifies that, like it, it does help uh, inspire or you know flower creativity? I mean, not particularly, but when talking to musicians and thinking about musicians, having grown up, you know, Max Roach was my godfather that I mentioned in the film, and my dad loved jazz, and I knew from a very early on that jazz musicians, it was, you know, something that they, they enjoyed doing. It, and then when they talk about, in the film, when Steve Hager, one of the people I interviewed, said that one of the things that they said back then as a negative was it... it it slows time down. It gives you that impression of time slowing down. But then Steve Hager was like, for improvisational in, um, things, it's like perfect to right. slow time down so you can move in and out of that groove and reinterpret that riff, that beat, that thing that's so integral to our music. Right. Um, I go, wow, that makes sense. Because I don't make music, so I can't think of like, man, I'm... I'm I'm making better music now that I smoke this this good weed. But in terms of the vibe that it puts you in, yeah. if you have that creative ability, it can clearly flow a lot better, which also made me realize that Branson, somebody that I featured in the film, a Harlem legend that in the 90s was renowned for consistently having that good Cali bud. I don't, we don't know what strain. Now, Branson and I, which, in fact, I was talking with Steve D'Angelo, who's a cannabis um, hero that kind of led the the activism to get California legal, and then he runs a really big company, Harborside. He's the cat with the long braids. Okay. He was, um, I was telling him about Branson, he was like, man, we should try to find out what strain it was he had in the 90s. I said, you know, I was talking to Branson, and he was like, man, he had, the connect was somewhere in Humboldt. He said, well, if he can find out, because he's into that kind of stuff, he can go back and help find what strain that could have been okay. that Branson consistently had in the 90s that made Redman, that made Biggie, that made The Locks, that made dozens of rappers, over 70 songs mention getting that Branson, getting a jar from Branson. You know, it's yeah. like if you really knew, you knew that that was, uh, that basically meant, you know. Sometimes that, I that feel like, like, there's like you remember when you used to have the ads like inspector 42 looked at your shirt right remember that right yeah and i feel like there's like some inspector somewhere who's like you know before a hip-hop song could be released there must be some reference to marijuana somewhere in the it's not a like we make very few songs about marijuana but it's gonna it's gonna be a you know even drake you know i'm, I'm at home smoking legal like just and it's yeah. not about weed it's just like yeah just everybody's just constantly mentioning it yeah yeah I think that's, 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 a, that's a good point. I think it definitely was. I think Branson having that really great smoke at that time. It was. It was that exclusivity. That thing that hip hop's always loved. That like rare thing. That that brand. That product. Branson was that. It were guys that had weed spots all over every hood, upscale, downscale, wherever. But there was one guy that that consistently had that really good strain of cannabis that clearly was a boom a benefit like when branson tells a story showing up big biggie was recording uh, a verse with this guy tracy lee and he, he he waited for branson to come see him everybody got right 
started spitting them bars and 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 Branson tells the story. Biggie said, "Man, you know I couldn't do this until you got here." Right, right. <laughs> so right. then I'm like really thinking about the creative process. These guys, man, I got to get my head right. I mean, it's it's been a you huge know? part of hip hop culture, yeah, almost from the beginning. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, so many rappers talk about it, so many songs talking about it. Yeah. I love the moment in the film where you talk about the Mount Rushmore of hip hop and weed. Yeah, and of course, it's Snoop, it's Meth, Method Man. It's Red Man and it's Cypress Hill. Exactly. And then the Netflix people moved around and threw me up on it. It's actually lovingly referred to as Mount Cushmore. Okay. Which is which you nice. can get. Nice. And they threw me up on there and Damien as represent as people in the film, which I was completely cool to not be in the marketing of my movie, but they said that they had tested and I tested well. I'm like, well, I'm not going to argue with you guys. Do it, do it. <laughs> but yeah. But no, it's been, I mean, like, uh, you know, you, you come from hip hop, I come from hip hop, and, mm -hmm. and the first, about half of the film is really diving into the marijuana in hip hop culture. You talk to Snoop, you talk to Be Real and Cypress Hill a lot, and this yeah. is it's a huge part of hip hop culture. It is. I mean, but it, interestingly too, like when I, I was at this, uh, I had to give a shout out to my man Leo Cohen, who runs YouTube Music. And about a year or so ago, there was this uh, event that he was behind YouTube giving, and it was like a big hip hop event during Grammy week. And I set up, Leo let me come in there with my crew and we posted up because I knew I needed an event where a lot of heads were going to be at. Mm. And so that was where I was able to grab Dougie Fresh, DMC. Oh my God, T Pain, Will I Am, um, David Banner, and got really quick interviews with these guys about the plant, you know, naming your favorite weed song. And then DMC, then I got some real great moments where, where uh, DMC talks about um, uh, how the King of Rock was actually initially. It was a weed song. Okay. And he did the actual original lyrics when they had played around with it. Uh, anyway, so that was really fascinating to get some deeper insights. I mean, the, 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 the ubiquity of dimensions in hip-hop gives me a, a sense almost yeah. of like, you're a black man, you're cool, you're supposed to do this, right? You're supposed to be able to play a little ball, you're yeah. supposed to be able to talk to girls, you're supposed <laughs> to be able to smoke a little weed. Yeah, but I wanted to say, like, Chuck D, who I talked to, is in the film. He let me know straight up, you know, Fab, I don't really smoke. And I let him know, like, the film is not just about smoking. We're dealing with these laws and yeah. these things that have oppressed people. Yeah. You know, this plant, that which, once again, hasn't really killed anybody. So I still, Chuck was able to give it up. But some people, once again, that I wanted to interview were apprehensive because they still have this, they had this thing that, oh, it's only for people that smoke. And I don't smoke, so I'm not, you know, they couldn't, they didn't want to, you know, that stigma is still really heavy. There's a great moment when you're talking to Bunny Whaler oh, God. in Jamaica. <laughs> and you're trying to talk to him straight up and down about weed. And he said, you sound like the police. He said, I, yeah, <laughs> he I, not I, answer your question. Like, you sound like a police. It was really amazing. I was completely shocked and was pissed, actually. But then, really, if you're looking at the movie, I said, like, wait, no, I'm going to leave that in. Like, but Why were you <laughs> upset? Because I, I really felt like he thought, he, in the way he came, it was such a, so strong and so hard. It was the first question of the interview. We had sat down. I got, I'm at this place called Pinnacle, which was where, let me give you the backstory, which, Pinnacle was where the first Rasta settlement was established in the 1930s. Wow. When Leonard Howe was one of the architects of the Rastafarian religion movement, which was an interesting remix on some Africanness from Selassie and some Indian. The whole ganja dreadlock thing came from Indians from India, sadhus that had brought to Jamaica early on as like indentured servants and had that whole, the whole word ganja is an Indian word. Okay. That pipe, that, uh, that ganja pipe that Rasta smoke from originates in India where, where cannabis is an ingrained part of the society, the culture, the gods, all of that stuff. So it was a big deal to be at this place pinnacle with these elder Rastas, including Bunny Whaler. And uh, the first question, he, you know, I heard your, your dad was a ganja farmer, which he was. And he said, I sound like a police. But then when you really know Bunny's history, these guys, like, they, they went at you. And he went at me in the same way. Like, I'm just like a lame dude from, like, some regular 
publication doing an interview. Like, well, that's a tough moment <laughs> as an interviewer, right? Because this man with great social stature, right? Older, respected gentleman, yeah, all yeah. that. There's a whole bunch of people. First question, and he's attacking you and denigrating your whole... Res- like, it's kind of an interviewer. I'm kind of like... I'm sh- See, you've done a lot more of this to me in that real journalist capacity. Yeah. I did it in the more of a fun Yorm TV raps thing or whatever, but I was like, I was taken aback. Yeah. Now, the person that was a woman there was a real well-known woman. Her name was Maxine Stowe. That was an A&R person in the 90s that had signed a lot of reggae acts, and she helped organize the thing. So she jumped in right away to say, this is what he means, and come on, Bunny, what's going on? And then he gave me a more okay. Okay. answer. Your but fixer helped you maintain the, the respect the, the and fixer like cooled okay. it off okay. and smoothed it out. But you need you need that because <laughs> I noticed like he did not seem to ever answer the question. He didn't. He and didn't. what's Fab going to do when he yeah. you know? But still, the sim- the symbolism for me of having him and those elder rosters in the film that were a lot of the guys that were down with Bob Marley when. Because reggae is what made Rastafarianism cool, if you will, in the country. They were complete and total outcasts Mm. in Jamaica from the 30s up until the 70s when reggae music began to resonate around the world. Mm -hmm. They were not feeling it because you had a country that had been dominated as a British colony. In fact, sad to say, in Jamaica now, when the... And this happens in some countries in Africa, I recently learned too. But they put on these wigs, black men with black, curly, black man hair. They put on these George Washington-looking white wigs when they're in their congressional things, which is shocking. Okay. It's just why you have that on your head right and then you you think of colonialism but you go but dude they've been gone for like 50 years like why are we doing this so anyway that's a snapshot of the ruling class in jamaica and what they were like after the british left and they were now a liberated uh colonial free if you will but still you know down with whatever and you know these guys growing their hair really crazy and Talking these uh, about highly uh, Lassie is God and all this yes. stuff. These people are like get out of here. Well, you know, we're we're down with Jesus Christ. You know, that white guy is who <laughs> we rock with. We're not rocking with this man from Ethiopia. Have so. you have you in your life ever like tried to quit or wanted to quit or? I've stopped smoking, and there's no physical whatever. You're just pissed that you don't have your smoke. You know, I'm like pissed, but there's no like withdrawal symptoms right. where you're like bugging out or whatever, whatever. So I've stopped smoking, and and when I'm working, I'm I don't smoke when I'm working. When I'm directing, when I'm making, doing what I do, to typically I'm not. That's an afternoon, evening, kickback, unwinding time. kind of thing. Not when you're painting. Not too much. Once again, in a certain times of the daytime. And you know what this probably comes from now that I think about it? From not being able to get a consistent strain that I know I'm a sativa hybrid guy. When your guy has a more down type of weed or something like that, it could sometimes my decision making, I'm not completely comfortable with it. Right, right, right. So I'm like, so I don't like the way I figured that out. I want to go back yeah. into your legendary history just a little bit. You yeah. were you were friends with Jean-Michel Basquiat. Both mm-hmm. of you were helping develop the early street art movement, which yeah. has blown up to become something global now. Yeah. What was Jean-Michel like? Oh, Jean-Michel, we, it was my buddy. We, you know, we uh, we were very in sync on many things. We were like very different and very uh, like alike. You know, same age from different parts of Brooklyn, you know, homeowning parents. Both of our fathers were uh, accountants. <clears throat> really? Both of our dads my father were, was too. were accountants. Crazy. So we kind of had similar things, but my dad was this pot-smoking, jazz-loving, intellectual, armchair revolutionary. Like, my dad, my household was a very different household than Jean's house, who's, whose dad was Haitian, was very straight and narrow, you know, do it by the book, my way or the highway. And Jean was a rebellious kid that yep. was doing things a little differently. So his dad was like, well, 
it's going to be the highway for you. Right. And so Jean, you know, broke out and was couch surfing, uh, sleeping in parks, I understand, a little bit uh, in the downtown scene. I mean, now. When we met. So now the look back is like. He was this prodigious genius who was constantly creating this amazing yeah, there's a lot art. Of, there's a lot of narratives out there on Jean-Michel. But there's also a lot of great um, uh, documentation, documentaries. that yeah. kind of pretty accurate. I've taken part in a lot of that yeah. stuff that gives people the real story. So if people haven't done their, you know. I mean, come on. And early on when Jean began the first blow up, everything was completely skewed. Unfortunately, once again, with this complete like racist slant, like um, there's a wild man painting in the basement of this gallery and uh, it was a complete negative, like, you know, which is just people assuming, oh, this guy's got this weird hairstyle. He's in the basement. He's some wild guy that they found off the street. Um, even when he did a collaboration with Andy Warhol and they created an incredible body of work and the press were like Andy's... Um, um, they made it seem like Andy had found this right. kid and he was Andy's protege and he was yeah. Andy's this and that and the other, which was all very negative and really pissed John off and pissed all of us off. So that was the then narrative. Now that his work is just re renowned in museums and everything across the planet, people have other narratives. But essentially, John was we were really, really good buddies. We um, in sync on a strategy about how we ourselves can make moves in the pop culture, how we were going to do this. Literally, we said, like, by any means necessary. We had the Malcolm poster then. Yeah. We was going to dabble in film. We was going to dabble in music. We was going to dabble in whatever we could to, to be heard and to make the impact that we both was trying to make on the popular culture. The strategy that you had was be in all media and just... No, that wasn't the strategy. The strategy was I'm making art, and yeah. that was the thing. But I also had this idea of making film, and the idea of making film was to showcase in a better light what, we, what our narrative was. It mm -hmm. was to basically lay down that narrative because prior to Wild Style, there was nothing, for the most part, positive said about young black or Latin youth right. using spray paint to express themselves. Right. It was, we were the scourge of the city. Right. Then there was this new music developing, which I was close, early on, I had a, I said, man, and it, I made this connection between the music and this visual form of art just to put us in a better light. And I, the ideas that became Wild Style were motivated by that, is to show us as creatives, as creative people, here's who we are, here's what we're doing. And that became the movie Wild Style. Yeah. So those were the legendary. Kind of, thank you. And that was the kind of idea that motivated that. Not like I was trying to do all these things at the same time, but whatever we could do to get the message out. And then Jean was gonna was following that as well. Like when I hipped him to the music, to hip hop, what it was, some of the early rap records, he was like, Okay, I got this. And then he took Ramel Z who was my protege that I introduced to Jean and brought him in the mix, put him in the movie Wild Style, put him in the track, because I saw he was intelligent enough to flow through this art world space. And Jean took him into the studio and made a record. Made a record. Uh, which is called Beatbox, yep. which I'm sure he would have made a lot more music. And he definitely, he acted. Once again, along the ideas of that, Glenn O'Brien rest in peace, who was our mentor, had an idea. And literally, this was going on at the same time we were making Wild Style. Glenn had an idea to make a film that reflected the downtown scene we were all a part of. And he, among three people he was thinking about, they chose Jean-Michel to be the principal in that film. And that became the film Downtown 81, where Jean does a remarkable job acting but a lot of people feel it's a documentary but right. it's really a narrative with a letting people kind of just do their own thing uh -huh. but within the the groove carved out for them for those parts and uh, so there would have been a bit more of that as well from Jean I'm sure of course you know hung around we met largely from being at MTV Me around the same time and you were the host of one of the most 
important shows, TV shows in hip hop history. The original host mm, of Yo MTV Raps. Yeah, that was um, fun. I mean, you at MTV News. I remember we I was at MTV we News been hanging out because it wasn't many black folks. Nope, nope, TV. nope. So no, like, when Fab would come through and be like, "Yo, Fab, yeah, there's one." Yeah, what's what's yeah. What's up? What are you but, doing? I mean, your so cool. but your show was legendary. I mean, I watched your show when I was in high school. I watched the first episode. Like, yo, like this is the thing right here. Like, but talk about making yo it's a legendary show yeah that was a crazy experience that really grew out of my connections with people on the downtown scene in new york right so i'm like doing what i'm doing i made these connections with these cool people on the new way punk rock scene that embraced me mentored me people like blondie glenn o'brien david byrne from the talking heads Jim Jarmish. It was like a really great, warm group of folks that we were a part of at that time. And there was this guy named Peter Doherty that was a guy that was really plugged in on the music scene, got a gig early on at MTV, took a class in how to become a producer. And he was working in the on-air promos department. He knew all the moves that I had been making on the downtown scene connecting the dots, you know, to Roxy, you know, introducing hip hop and and doing my painting thing, you know, along with Jean-Michel. And Peter was lobbying MTV to do a show because he knew that these records were coming out, selling like crazy with no marketing, no promo, Run DMC, LL Cool J, Houdini, Eric B and Rakim coming out. And so he lobbied like MTV to try a show. And then this other guy that was at MTV that was a big fan, a guy named Ted Demi. Together, MTV said, okay, we'll give this a shot. And they gave it a shot. And I got the call to be the host of the show. Peter, I knew well. And I'm like, come on, these guys are not playing any black music. What's going on? Peter was like, yo, I think that, you know, we want to do a screen test with you. And he said, I like telling the story. He said, well, how would you want to do it? Because he knew I had ideas. I said, well, those other VJs on MTV are cooped up in that room. Mm-hmm. Mark Goodman, mm-hmm. Martha Quinn, whoever these people were. Julie like, Brown. Julie Brown or whatever. I said, I don't want to be cooped up in that room. In a studio. In a studio. Yeah. I said, no, I want to be, um, if I could be out in the street, like in the studio, in the, in the, on the corner with cats, I'll feel better. And it'll be a more natural thing. He says, okay, let's try it. And the show would be on the road in their world. Well, then we took it on the road. But the idea, I didn't realize we were going to travel. when he, This was the idea I had, and this was how the pilot was done. So Peter went, they came a crew I met. He threw some things at me, like I'm introducing this and give a little flavor. We, we, we actually went up on the Williamsburg Bridge, close to the Manhattan side. So we had a nice backdrop of urban New York, and we did a few moments there. And then he went back, and whatever he did with it, they said, okay, let's try this. And the next thing you know... Um, the show changed the culture. He came back and said it was the highest show that MTV right? ratings that they ever did. It, so. it, it definitely shaped hip-hop. I mean, I was talking to Rakim about this. Ah, and yeah. he said that after Yo, the importance of the video rose to a level that he became more of a visual writer. That's wow. That's amazing to know. And um, so, I had directed my philosophy, which was my first music KRS video, One. KRS One. In that that spring, it was in May of '88, and I had also recently taped that little screen test for you and for yo. And I remember people asking, "Yo, Fab, man, do you think this video is going to get played on MTV?" I said, "Look, man, please." Don't ask me that. MTV's not really playing black music. In fact, I'm working to make this video so black based on what my man KRS-One is saying, they would never want to play this. Because I'm putting Farrakhan's image in this video. I'm putting Bob Marley, Marcus Garvey. This is the shit that KRS-One is on. I'm feeling it. You feel me? Like The the image on the album, once again, was him. Based on that Malcolm X image, he got the Uzi in his hand peeking out the window, a la Malcolm, which right away spoke to me. And when I got with him, and then the other backstory is I have been campaigning to try to get to direct a video for Public Enemy. Oh, wow. I've written like six concepts off of that first album. Um, Bum Rush, Yo, Bum the, Rush show. the Show. Bum Rush The Show. Love that. And I was in the studio campaigning because in the process of making Wild Style, I had learned filmmaking. 
There was no video shows. The only video platform was Ralph, Ralph McDaniel's, McDaniel's show, Video, video Music, Music Box. Yes. But still, I'm going, yo, I get this energy. I grew up, I know what ch- uh, what Public Enemy's about. Because my pops, my father was in the room when Malcolm X was assassinated. Wow. <clears throat> so my pops was one of those kind of black dudes that was checking for all kind of other outlets. And that's what that's some of the things that his friends would be talking about in the house. So I'm I'm like had pieces of them conversations. So when KRS One, I'm seeing this. I'm like, wait a minute, I get this whole shit. I could put these images together, and I'm campaigning once again. I'm sorry to do a video for Public Enemy, right. which didn't happen because Chuck would later tell a story. He said, "Man, Fab, we we spent thirty thousand dollars putting the whole album together. That was a low budget video budget at the time." He said, "I couldn't see spending thirty k on a video, but I'm." I was like, man, because he would, we'd have these meetings. I'd be in the studio trying to explain how I'm going to do this clip and that. Basically, Ann Carly, who was A&R for Jive, had heard about me campaigning to do this. She says, I got I got a video for you. I was like, I didn't even know this chick. She, I said, what you talking about? But she had heard what I was trying to put together. She knew enough about my background. She had instincts. It was one of the great moves of of life for me and she offered me my philosophy. Wow. So the look and feel of my philosophy were a lot of ideas that I had developed for what I would have did with Public Enemy. Black and white, you know, shooting black and white and give you that sense of, you know, I had some of these ideas like slide projections on the wall of these different people and and that became my philosophy. My What's your video. superpower, Fab? Superpower. Well, well, you got good questions, Trey. Um, I don't know. I don't think I have any superpower, but I've never been as once again afraid to to pick up a book. So I've always been immersed in reading, and anything I'm really curious about, I'm gonna find out about. And so that's been a process of me. That's how filmmaking came together. That's how making paintings came together. I was obsessed with these things. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals. Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order. Usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey on March 16th 2000 two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta Jamil Alameen a Muslim leader and former black power activist was convicted but the evidence was shaky and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial my name is mostly secret and when I started investigating this case in my hometown I uncovered a dark truth about America from tenderfoot tv campside media and iheart podcasts radical is available now Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Before and in the process of doing that, really immersing myself in these worlds. And then as far as, you know, television and filmmaking, we grew up with the TV on. So I've been very familiar with having seen how films are made. And then when you do a little research, you understand that, oh, there's a crew Standing Helping around every single scene you've ever seen, you've ever saw in a film, and I was like, "Oh wow, there's people there that are saying, do, do this, this do put that. the light here, and we're gonna move that camera in to get that effect.'" So, but, I mean, part of what this show is about is success and exploring how it is achieved and maintained. And you have been successful in several different fields, and you've had several different legendary uh, moments as a creator. Mm. So, I guess the question is just why. You like why have you been able to be successful over such a long? Yo started in the yeah. late eighties. Yeah, low started now you're late eighties. Now we, you're on Netflix. It's almost the twenty twenties. It like, is. It is. And Wild Style was done in the early eighties. Yeah. So really, I really attribute it all back, and I was greatly 
so excited that I was able to put that sh that little piece of my family upbringing in the beginning of Grass is Greener, where you see my dad and his friends, and I talk about how my dad's friends, four days, four to five days out of every week, in the basement of the brownstone I grew up in in Bedstock, Brooklyn, there were five to six of my dad's friends. He was the ringleader. They were discussing all these things going on on the planet. They were reading everything. They were covering all the major periodicals. So it was like super smart, super cool dudes, you know, and like having Max Roach as a godfather and seeing him in Ebony and and the, in Jet Magazine and knowing like, you know, I had a connection to that and these ideas that these men talked about doing and what they wanted to do as jazz musicians. I remember the fact that Max always wanted to, he used to always talk about calling his autobiography jazz is a four letter word. Um, because if, I don't know if you know the story of how the word jazz was created. They say it came out of a whorehouse in New Orleans. It was slang that whores would use. They would tell a they would tell a guy, come on and jazz me, babies. That J-A-S-S evolved into the word jazz. And so, so it was sin and fuck. Essentially. Okay. Essentially, that was the allusion to what the word meant. And so Max and these guys being highly intelligent, just like we are now, if you will, but not having the ability to do the things that they wanted to do, being able to control their own narratives, being able to write the stories. I mean, not that everybody that wrote about jazz didn't, were against black folks, but to have the voices of those people in the middle of it tell those stories was a thing that we didn't have the ability to actually do and get that out on the mainstream. So I was aware when those things motivated the moves that I made, that motivated wild style, that motivated wanting to put things out there, that motivated me wanting to direct videos. And wanting help. to show black people in a more powerful, authentic, but powerful light. Absolutely. And then Yo, being able to, the way Yo organically developed and having Peter and Ted, they totally gave us carte blanche. Yep. Nobody hovered over Yo MTV Raps the first few years of what we well, did. They didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> yeah. All they knew was was getting good numbers. People are watching. People were watching, Keep baby. going. People were getting cable as a result of Yo MTV Rap. I remember Ice-T telling us, man, people were demanding getting cables so they can watch this show. Because <laughs> wow. it wasn't on the radio like it is 24-7 right. at that time. So Yo MTV Raps, we had the, the audio and the visual. And I became aware, like, we're controlling the the narrative largely. Writers like you, writers like Barry Michael Cooper, mm. uh, people that were beginning as hip-hop journalism developed, and it was really us with our own flavor putting those words on the page when I read it. I'm like, wait a minute. I remember reading Barry Michael Cooper's first articles. I'm like, Ooh. I remember reading Bones Malone's first Ooh. articles and going, wait a minute, like, who was writing this shit? Like, I'm feeling like I'm talking to cats in the hood, but they're putting these sentences in, in place correctly. And so those were moves that I realized um, we hadn't, we weren't in position to do those things. And I really was enjoying that and enjoying seeing that Develop part of this part of your story is just just the beauty and the power of having a strong father who's mm. there to sure. mentor you That's tacitly true. and and explicitly. You yeah. keep coming back to your father as an intellectual, as a strong man, yeah. as a you know as, as a man who inspired you, even perhaps yeah. not even overtly, but inspired you to 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 yeah. do what you've done. You really did him. And what was his name? Fred Brathwaite, and. Uh, you know, and the fr and the people around him, like he had a we had a group of Crew. friends that he grew up with that were all his guys. So another little snapshot. So when my dad and them were coming up in the fifties, when bebop was the hottest music on the planet, they had all recent after World War II learned how to play chess. So my dad and his his buddies had a crew. They were known as the Chessmen. They had gotten a big house in Brooklyn. They they'd rented a big old Victorian house, and it was it was on it was it was at two twelve Gates Avenue. Building is no longer there, and they would play chess there on a regular. A bunch of these guys, and then they had a huge living room, and so they would give what they would call jazz sets. They were like jazz parties because Max Roach is now a big deal mm -hmm. and Max is now hanging with Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, Dizzy Gillespie, the A to Z, cream of the crop. They coming to New York. They want to come and hang with the cats like where the real cats are hanging. 
So they'd come to Brooklyn, hang with my dad and his crew, have these incredible parties. I grew up hearing these stories. Thanks to Fab Five Freddy for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and maybe this show can help. I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please go over to iTunes and review this show. I'd really appreciate it. And tell a friend about the show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Brandon Tago, and our photographer is Chuck Marcus. We're distributed by DCP Entertainment, and we will be back next Wednesday with more knowledge from amazing folks because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.